Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, formerly Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations, identifying the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage. I created this show because of the pace of change we as leaders are currently facing and the imperative that we keep current, and yet I don't know anyone as a leader who has enough time to keep current on the range of topics that they would like to. So my goal in this podcast is to, in a concise way, but with sufficient detail and depth, share trends and ideas And my goal for everyone that listens is that you walk away with something of value in every show. So something that updates your thinking and something that updates your behavior. And if we as leaders continually to update how we think and behave, we will be well positioned to continue to lead incredibly effectively. So our our guest today is Simon McRory. He is a specialist in team development. He works with senior leaders to help them discover the edge of becoming truly high-performing teams. Over his 30-year career, he's worked with global, globally with blue-chip client base in public and private sector. So, Simon, why don't you tell us more about you and also tell us about your new book, which I'm finding fascinating. Hi, Maureen. Um, yeah, my I've been working for the last uh, 30 years with uh, clients across the globe, uh, working with them predominantly on helping the senior teams become much more effective. But I do work with teams at all levels in the organization. And the other side of my work is to help organizations develop what I call a corporate team strategy, which I think is a really critical element today because most organizations that I come in contact with, despite the fact that 90% of what they they do happens through collaborative effort, making teams an imperative, um, they don't have a strategy for teamwork. Teamwork seems to be very ad hoc. It seems to be call a group in the corner a team and there's an expectation that they'll perform as a team. And of course, as you and I both know, nothing could be further from the truth. And therefore, I have worked for many years in helping organizations craft those strategies that will actually allow them have a much more robust approach to how teams will operate within their organization. When I wrote the book, uh, Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, the Imperative of Teams, I think the, the, the name even itself probably gives you an indication that I had a, a certain amount of frustrations about the, what I was ex- experiencing within the organizations I worked with um, and that I felt companies weren't really taking on the issues of teamwork. If, if, if 90% plus of what we're doing is happening through teams, we've got to take it a lot more seriously than we do. And therefore, I sat down at one stage to write down all of my experiences and thoughts about how teams would operate uh, based on my work, my work experience. And that's where the book came from. So it is written, I suppose, a little bit tongue-in-cheek at times um, in terms of what I've observed and what I've experienced. But I really wanted to get a message out there, which is it's time to wake up and smell the coffee, guys. Teamwork is critically important. And if you want to be successful and you want to stand apart, 
well, then you've got to get the teams really working within your organization. So on that note, you've said teamwork is imperative in this environment to stay agile and productive. Teams, uh, groups actually need to work as teams and that we as teams must be effective or we just bleed energy out of the system. Uh, and, and you give us some tools in the book for actually what to do to become more effective. Is that correct? Absolutely. I, I'm a great believer that every team has it within itself to improve its own effectiveness, but it's got to stop and take some time out of the day-to-day, get out of that operational piece and think about how they do what they do, not just what they do. It's what we call reflexivity. And they need a structure and a methodology for how that should take place. That's not something that happens by accident or once in a blue moon. It should be happening on a regular basis, regular determined by the team itself in terms of its needs. So maybe monthly, quarterly, whatever. But they need to actually address the issues of how they work together and find ways to make themselves more efficient. And any team who takes that time out, I guarantee any team that will do that will drive their effectiveness by 5, 10, 15, 20%. That's what they will do. And that's what my book is ultimately about, a methodology for how to do that. Self-managing for the teams. They don't need consultants crawling all over them. They need to be able to get on and do this themselves. And the system is designed so they can continuously do it. Okay, so in the book, if someone reads it, what is the biggest takeaway, one, two, three takeaways? Interesting question. Um, I think the big takeaway is that it is about the team taking time out to think about what it does. If you observe any team in terms of their meetings, if I, and I often do, one of the first things I'll do when I'm working with the team is sit in on a couple of their meetings. And very often to me, they appear like a series of one-to-one meetings with very members of the team and the leader and an audience sitting around listening to them. Um, and they focus entirely on the operational issues. They never sit back and ask themselves the question, are we being led appropriately? Do we need to ask the leader to change the way they're, they're working with us? Are we all clear on what we're doing? Are we all seeing it in the same way? Are we clear in our roles? Are there tasks falling through the cracks that are not being done? Are we duplicating effort? Are we actually recognizing performance? Are we dealing with non-performance issues within the team? Are we carrying people? They don't ask those questions of themselves and they don't get that conversation going. So that's the first big takeaway for me in the book is you need to stop and ask yourself those questions. And I've laid these out in the book, a whole series of questions. In fact, the book in the latter part of it is a whole series of questions. I don't provide answers because I don't believe I have the answers for teams. They have it themselves, but they need to ask themselves the questions. And I've laid out the questions for them. So it is, you know, take time out and reflect, ask yourself these questions and recognize, particularly recognize that teams are not all the same. You have traditional teams, you have project teams, you have virtual teams, you have teaming work groups. And these are all need to be led and managed and resourced even differently and they need different methodologies and supports around them to be effective. So it's about recognizing, A, what are you in terms of a team composition? And secondly, then, as I say, getting this issue of taking time out to reflect and finally making sure you're asking the right questions of yourselves. So those are the three big takeaways. Fabulous. So let's jump into now the beginning. What is a team? How are you defining team? Because I think a lot of us say we understand that word and there would be as many definitions as there are humans. Yeah, this, this, this kind of brings us into the idea of, um, I suppose, team size and what is a team and what isn't a team. The problem is in the world of work is that we use this word very generically and we use it to, to describe lots of different things. So we, we talk about the, let me take the HR function within a large organization. We talk about the HR team. 
Yet that in a large organization could be comprised of 100 people made up of maybe 10, 11 different teams. But yet we refer to the HR group as the team. We even refer to entire companies as the team. <clears throat> and they're not, of course. Teams, in my mind, are less than 10 people. That's the type of group we're working with. The research all supports that any team that goes beyond 10 runs into amazing difficulties. And there are a whole, whole series of, 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 of uh, research out there by very well-known and very renowned uh, um, people in their field talking about the problems that happen when you have too many people on a team. Uh, so you get a, if you go beyond 10, here's the first big problem that happens. If you've got a team of five people, you need 10 conversations for that team to be fully informed. So that seems reasonable enough. When that gets to 10 people on the team, you need 45 conversations for them to be informed. And then by the time it gets to 14, which is not uncommon, by the way, it takes 91 conversations to inform the team. That's never going to happen, not in a million years. So as that team gets bigger, the communication overload becomes too much. The team spend more time actually trying to manage the communication than doing anything else. So it's a major, major problem. And this is a, an exponential growth in the size of teams when, when, they, when they start to go along this road. The second point when you get to the bigger team is a concept called social loafing. And social loafing was actually first discovered by a guy called Ringelman back in the 1800s. He was a, a, an agricultural engineer. And he noticed that when you, the more people you put on a tug-of-war team, where they were pulling on a rope, the more people on each side, the less effort each person exerted because they felt other people were taking up the slack. The same happens in a, in a team that gets too big. You get people being carried, people social, uh, what we call social loafing, just not doing what needs to be done. They're hiding behind the, the mass of people that are sitting within the team. So it's not a very productive environment. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of resources. And it's not very beneficial to the organization overall. And also within that, that larger team, you get the problem of cliques and groups forming, which become quite destructive. And that they're inevitable in a group of that size. So we... we we know the teams, when they're in the five, seven, eight region, they are very effective. But when they get bigger than that, they begin to lose their effectiveness. And I think it was the CEO of Amazon who famously said, if it takes more than two pizzas to feed the team, the team's too big. So how do you answer the question then? Because I'm just imagining people I've worked with or am working with who say everyone needs to be included, everyone needs a voice, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what's your response to that? Yeah, everybody does need to be included and everybody does need a voice, but it's got to be done at the appropriate team level. So in a, in a group of uh, 50 people, there is probably going to be at least five teams. So work with the teams at that level. Those teams will all have different goals. They will have different dynamics going on within them. They'll have different struggles, different challenges that they're trying to deal with. And they need to address those at that group level. You cannot address them at the level of the, the group of 50. It doesn't mean people are excluded. It doesn't mean people don't have their voice. They do but they have it in a way that it's actually relevant. They have it where it's heard. They have it where they can make a real contribution to how their particular group of people as a team perform because they can only influence that area. They can't influence the overall and they can't make a major contribution to the overall. So get them at the, at the level where they can actually make a real difference. That's why we say you break it down. I, I love that thought. And I'm thinking of boards specifically where people will have 50 people on a board oh. and th those meetings aren't, working meetings, their information dissemination? Uh, there are lectures, a series of lectures is what I see them as. There's no exchange of ideas. There is a, a whole series of people telling you what, what, what they believe the situation to be, and then they move on to the next person. And that's, that's even more effective than some I've seen. 
Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I can I can I can understand that. Yes. So you talk about then this idea of reflecting, and Ooh. I think of of relationships, and so I think of my business partner, I think of my um, life partner. Mm. We take time on a regular basis to say, "How's it going?" Mm. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Is this the I want to say is it's that simple. I realize it, that reflecting and seeing how it's going is never simple, but it is conceptually how are how are we doing? How should we be doing it? And is what we're is the how of how we're relating and assigning tasks working to accomplish our business strategy? Yeah, I mean reflexivity. It's um it's becoming quite a, a buzzword at the moment, and there's been quite a, a number of academic papers emerging on the subject actually. Um, <clears throat> one in particular by uh, Shippers et al. There, there were combination of universities in the UK and in Holland. They did research into the National Health Service in the UK, which is you know one of the biggest employers in the world. 1.6 million people work within it, um, and they were looking at um, the, the the high levels of stress that these people were working under, and they discovered, which I thought was really interesting, where that the higher levels of both work and um, reflexivity where it was practiced those teams produce much higher levels of innovation. So the more work they had and the more time they gave to reflexivity, the more innovation they delivered, which I thought was a really interesting outcome of the research. And that was quite a, 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 an elongated study and quite a comprehensive study. They also found that physical working environment where it was poor, so and very often with the NHS, it is quite poor in terms of the, the environment they have to work within. They found that when that was poor and reflexivity was practiced, innovation accelerated again. Because people find ways when they take time to think about how they're doing something to improve it. And it's very often the obvious that's been overlooked for so long is what they actually pick up on. And they make these small adjustments based on the reflexivity. And the next thing is they are, they've taken a major barrier out of the way. Or somebody's asked the obvious question, why are we doing it like that when we could do it like this? And suddenly we begin to realize We've always done it like that, but actually you're right. This is a much better way to do it. But unless you give people the time, specific time, allocated time to talk about those issues, they don't ever get to think about them. It's, it's because we're too busy. The world today is just so busy. We don't have time to think about how we're doing stuff. Rather, we just get on with what we're doing. And that resonates entirely with me that people are, are way too Overcommitted to tasks mm. and taking time to reflect isn't on the task list or, or it's rushed through. Actually, we were building a leadership training program and one of the people from our steering committee said, well, why don't you just get rid of that reflection stuff? Then we'll have a lot more time to get work done. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, Justice, it's, it's unreal sometimes the way people approach these things. Of course, there's a couple of other things that are going on here when you start to get into reflexivity. Uh, it, 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 to get it to work effectively, one, it has to be structured. Two, it has to be scheduled. Three, there has to be the appropriate accommodation for it to take place. And it's got to become a habit. But also the team that practices reflexivity, it's kind of like a, um, a backwards and forwards thing. They must have psychological safety within the team to practice reflexivity. But the more you practice reflexivity, the more you build psychological safety. And by psychological safety, I mean that sense of being able to say what needs to be said, speaking up, expressing new ideas, seeking new ways to do things and improve the team or the company, equality of airtime, never having your ideas stolen, 
um, and I'm being encouraged to contribute, that everybody has something to say here. And that idea, but no question is too stupid to ask. That's really critical in a psychologically safe environment. So reflective teams tend to build psychological safety and psychologically safe teams tend to practice reflexivity. So if I am running a team and I just, and let's do a one minute answer to this and then we'll go to break. If I'm running a team that isn't currently psychologically safe, is there a one first step I can take to move toward creating safety other than Uh, telling people they should be safe? This is not necessarily a one minute answer, but I'll give it a go. Psychological safety is back on the agenda today because Google came out and told everybody about a year and a half ago that psychological safety was the most critical element in teamwork, despite everything else that had been written about in the past. So composition, behavioral patterns, all that didn't matter. Psychological safety was where it was at. Now, they're right to a point, but the problem is you can't you can't deal with psychological safety in isolation. Psychological safety is the basis of a whole series of other things that are happening. So it, psychological safety is, a, is, is a, a, a condition you arrive at when you have clear goals, when you have everybody clear in the roles that they're using, when you have appropriate leadership, when you have a leader that encourages everybody to participate, when you have a leader that thinks in the inverted hierarchy and sees themselves there to support the team and not be supported by the team, when you have a team that is constantly assessing its performance issues and dealing with the performance at all levels, good, bad, and indifferent, when you have a team that is addressing composition, when it's addressing uh, communication, trust within the team, all of those things together over time develop what I call a psychologically safe platform. And of course, they're not going to happen automatically unless you work with them. But also, you've got to be reflective to try and get them to work because they're, they are principally how we do things, not what we do. Perfect. So on that note, we'll come back and unpack that after break. But for our listeners, as you're reflecting over break, think about just one team that you're on, maybe the primary team, if you work on multiple teams, do you feel psychologically safe? Are you comfortable raising difficult topics and being innovative? We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We are talking to Simon about his latest book, Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, an Imperative for Teams. And before break, we were talking about psychological safety. Can you unpack that just a little bit more for our listeners? What should they be thinking about? And I realize you're not going to recite the book on a short interview, but what are some of the key takeaways other than... I need psychological safety to do this and, and reflection actually builds psychological safety. I heard that loud and clear mm-hmm. and that there are kind of a number of behaviors that need to be happening in that reflection to build it. So I'm assuming it like any runway, I need to head down the runway before I take off. Yeah, I, you, you, you can't build psychological safety straight up. It's, a, it's an end condition that you arrive at by doing many other things that I talk about in the book effectively. So by getting on all of these issues like goals, roles, leadership, appropriateness, leadership, participation of the team, they're all important issues that lead ultimately to a psychologically safe environment. You know, the best person to 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 listen to on this particular subject is uh, Professor Amy Edmondson of, uh, from Harvard. She is probably the person who has done the most work and brought it to world attention in the last number of years. Her TEDx talks are fantastic, and I would recommend them to anybody if you want to understand more about psychological safety and how she approaches it. But where we probably disagree is in terms of how I believe it should be arrived at as an end condition, and she looks at, I suppose, more something that you can actually aim for. Um, I just think it's a bit too nebulous, Um, but it is all about creating that environment where everybody in that team can speak up and everybody can contribute. Why have them on the team if they can't contribute? Why have them on the team if they can't voice ideas? Why have them on the team if you can't have a bloody good, robust debate amongst yourselves without falling out? That's what psychological safety ultimately equates to. That idea that we can exchange ideas, we can have differences of opinion, they lead to us debating and innovating in terms of how we move forward as a group together. That's what it's all about. Not everybody's idea is going to be accepted every time. That's okay too. But it's the ability to be able to put it forward and have that discussion. I mean, I know where people very often, I'm sure you've come across this, Maureen, in, in your work, where somebody sitting at the table will tell you afterwards, I, I didn't want to ask the question because I thought it was stupid and I thought everybody else knew the answer. Where in fact, everybody else was thinking the same thing. So the question never got asked, right? So I wonder for people to be good team members, it sounds like it requires a level of personal maturity as well. Yeah, look, everybody has to be prepared to stand up and be counted. I often say everybody in the team is a leader. 
in the way they do their job and the way they, they participate in the way they communicate. But you know not Everybody's not as confident as everybody else. Not everybody's an extrovert. Not everybody feels comfortable, particularly in a team where you've got longstanding members of the organization, more newer people coming in, or you've got a mix of senior and junior, and people can feel intimidated in that situation. I quite understand that. This is where <clears throat> the team leader becomes really important in ensuring that that equality of airtime is there that the team leader is conscious of making sure that everybody has an opportunity to speak, that everybody's opinion is sought, that they even use the more senior members in the team to mentor and help and support people, and they make that a way of doing business. That's the team that will ultimately deliver psychologically safe environments for the people who work within it. And that's the team that will actually innovate. That's the team that will find new ways to do things. And I guarantee you, that's the team from other people's perspective that seems to be always succeeding. So, so there is a way to make teams succeed. This isn't a, a dream. No. It's, it's possible. And but there are processes and skills that are required to make it happen. And it does, a lot of the time, it does start and end with the leader, I have to say. But people within the team have to take responsibility as well and, 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 and engage. Uh, but the leader has to create the environment where they feel they can engage. And I'm can, afraid to say too many leaders don't do that. If the leader is ineffective... Can a team still be effective? No. Ah, okay. In my opinion. So I you can't work around the bad guy or the ineffective person. The, the, the poor team leader really shuts down the whole operation of the team. They really do. They, they, they impede the team from performing. I was brought in recently to work with a client, um, and they said to me, well, we want you to deal with this team over here. Uh, they really are struggling. And I said, why are they struggling? Ah, well, they're a very bad leader. And I said, how long has that leader been in situ? And they said, oh, about three years. And I said, well, how long have you known that it's a bad leader? Oh, about three well, years. Three years. <laughs> I said, well, what do you expect me to do, right? Okay. I mean, what, what kind of magic wand do you expect me to wave over this person to turn them from a basically unsuitable leader into a suitable leader? I said, I can't do that. The answer is obvious. You should get rid of that leader. Or put them in a different role, but yeah, not have them doing that. Exactly. They're not suited to the job. And they are, and you know, if you take somebody walking into your organization tomorrow morning with a hammer in their hand and they go around and start breaking up laptops and, and, and office equipment, you'll call security, you'll have them marched off the premises, you'll call the police, you'll charge them, you'll fire them, summarily dismiss them, I might add, because they've just damaged company property and that must be worth at least six or $700. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you can have a team leader that's abusing the hell out of his team, not making it work effectively. The combined salary payroll for that team is probably in the half a million, 750,000 minimum. And that abuse of company resources is okay. You know, I was in a conversation just an hour ago with a colleague about people who are sent to coaching. So sentenced, basically. Mm -hmm. And often, and both of us were finding the same thing. Often they will send the, the subordinate uh, and when the issue is really the boss. Oh, yeah. And no one wants to address the boss, so they address the person working for the, the less effective boss. Mm -hmm. and, and the junior person is told that they're ineffective and they've got to fix themselves. Yeah. And it, wouldn't, it isn't always just the boss. It can be the boss's boss is the problem. Mm -hmm. The one with, with what I call the very, very serious condition of long-armitis, that they keep reaching into the team and undermining the leader. 
Uh, that could be as well. And I'm thinking any range of leadership issues and not that not that the person I'm coaching couldn't also improve because most of us can. Sure. So it's not a terrible thing, but it, it is unfortunate that you're fixing half of a relationship. You're not fixing the full relationship. And you're not fixing the one that really needs to be fixed, in my view. Uh, and organizations have a habit of uh, rewarding this kind of bad behavior. Or they get trapped in the idea that somebody was promoted because of their expertise. You know, this idea of the Peter principle, being promoted to your own level of incompetence. So somebody is technically very good at whatever they do. So they end up being the leader of the team. But they're a mm -hmm. terrible people manager and a terrible team leader. But the organization gets caught in the idea that, oh, if we talk to him or give out to him, or her for that matter, or they'll leave. And then where will we be? Because we'll lose their expertise. So they actually reinforce that leader's actions by, by not dealing with it. So the leader continually thinks they're doing the right thing. But in fact, they're, being, they're decimating the team. Do you know that only 10% of teams qualify as high performing? 40%, a frightening 40% are dysfunctional. and should either be disbanded or have their leaders replaced. Leaving 50% of teams in our organizations are basically just about performing. Now, if 90% of what we do is happening through teams, that is a, a, a terrible disposition, a position for us to find ourselves in. And I know that most organizations are in that position. Their teams are not performing anywhere near where they could, and they're not addressing the issue. And we tolerate it. Why is that? Because we don't know what to do. Because okay. we don't have strategies for teams. We haven't thought it through. There's an assumption that teams just work. Call a group of people a team and, hey, Preston, <laughs> they're going to deliver for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it's, you know, to make a really effective team takes hard work. It takes consistent effort. It takes repetitive, consistent effort, repetitive hard work. You have to pay attention to it. And this is the how, not the what, the how. That's the team that will become high performing. But it doesn't, it's all about hard work. It's not about doing a once a year thing out in the outdoors. I mean, what nonsense is that when it comes to it, by the way? Taking people outdoors <laughs> to do these strange uh, tasks, which are not based in reality, are designed to succeed in the first instance, bear no resemblance to the work we do in the workplace, get everybody fired up that they can work together, then they go back to face the same old issues which have not been addressed, and of course the whole thing gets worse again. I mean, nonsense, absolute nonsense. Good teams, effective teams, great leaders, they do it day to day, every day, not once a year. So I'm going to, on that note of things that are nonsense, you mentioned in our conversation before the interview something about fun and teamwork. Oh, you're getting, <laughs> me, on, you're getting me onto my soapbox now, Maureen. <laughs> uh, fun and teams, yes. This is something that seems to be, I don't know where it's come from. Well, I suppose I have an idea where it's come from, but let's, let's, let's take it for what it is. Every time I go into working in an organization, the issue of fun comes up around the concept of team development. Is what you do fun? Will they have fun? They're having such a hard time recently. A nice day out and a bit of fun would be very good for them. And I'm thinking, oh, what's fun got to do with anything at all? Teamwork is hard work. It's, it's work. Fun isn't, it, it, it isn't, it isn't about fun. It's about getting the job done. It's about getting these people back to performing at the level that they need to perform at. It's about engaging them. It's about all those things I talked about. Now, interestingly, the dictionary definition of fun is behavior or an activity that is intended purely for amusement and should not be interpreted as having any serious or purpose. Now, is that what we do in the workplace? 
when you go into an organization and they want to buy project management training or management development or IT training, is the first question, is it fun? They don't care whether it's fun or not. What they want to know is, will it deliver a better project manager? Will it deliver a better management team? That's it's the outcome. It's the capacity for delivering increased and enhanced performance that's of interest, not whether it's fun. This is just total nonsense. I don't get it. <laughs> and it really annoys me because it means to me that they're not taking it very seriously. And this is why I'm saying we have all these challenges in the organization. We haven't sat down. We've overlooked the obvious. Teams need strategies and they need a corporate team strategy that says we have these number of teams. I bet you most organizations that you engage with couldn't tell you how many teams they have in play. They couldn't tell you how many of each type of team they have in play. And in many cases, they can't even tell you why there's a team in play. Or if the team has accomplished its goals and should be disbanded. Exactly. So I was working with a group recently in London and they said to me, oh, this is our best team. We want you to work with them. And I said, well, why are they there, your best team? They said, because they always do what they say they're going to do. And I said, so they're all going to play golf on Monday morning, and they all do it. Does that make them the best team? They said, oh, no, no, we don't mean that. I said, well, what do you mean? And they couldn't tell me what they meant by they always do what they say they'll do. Is it that they have specific goals, measurable goals, and they they actually accomplish them? Well, they, they, this organization could not explain why this team was the best team. They just said they were. Now, I'm assuming it's because they do perform and deliver. One, one has to make that assumption. But what were they performing and what were they delivering? And what were the key business metrics that were associated with team performance and not individual performance? Where was the team evaluation? Where was the team metric? Where was the team assessment? The holy grail of performance management today with the, with the abandonment of performance appraisal happening at an exponential rate, the holy grail is how do we develop team-based assessment? Because that's now essential, absolutely essential, if we're to move our teams forward. And you have something, right? I have something. You mean... Sorry, I have... you have a team-based assessment. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I have many things. Um, <laughs> Thank I you have... for being so literal with that question. <laughs> yes. Um I have a system that can be used for a team-based assessment, but its primary purpose is to create that structure for the team to have the conversation and be self-managing in developing their own effectiveness. But because it's based on a, a, it's because it's statistically based, it can be used to correlate with other key business metrics. And so we can correlate with uh, absenteeism, attrition rates, sales performance, financial performance, performance against budget that really your, your imagination is, is the only thing that will stop you in identifying the metric. The tra- challenge to most organizations is finding the metrics that tell them why a team in their organization is successful. And that will be different from organization to organization. So I'm working with a, um, a hospital at the moment, a big teaching hospital here in London, and we're trying to understand what equates to success in a team. Um, we're looking at eight separate metrics over the next 12 months. And as I said to them, we may be very, very, very surprised at what turns out to be the one that tells us about success. And I have no idea what it'll be. But it takes time to figure it out. And I appreciate that you're using a a highly quantitative approach because I think often we will mistake it was fun or not painful or we like hanging out with each other for we're a highly effective team. And to your point, sometimes it's not fun especially when you are dealing with the complexities of five to seven people or more working together. that Humans are complicated. 
They're extremely complicated. You know, this idea of fun, again, I just we, we, I, I won't beat it to death, but, you know, off-site events, most people don't like them. Most people don't want to go. And I certainly want to put my life at risk uh, doing whitewater rafting or falling backwards into somebody's arms for some sort of trust exercise. I don't know how that builds trust. I really don't. Okay. On that note, we're going to go on break. And, and for our listeners, as you think about how would you measure trust in your organization? Sorry, how would you measure team effectiveness in your organization? What goal specifically would you connect? If this team is working well, we have accomplished X. So Simon and I will be back momentarily. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You're with Simon and Maureen, and we're talking about wake up and smell the coffee, the imperative of teams. So, Simon, we've talked a lot about your book. Let's step back and take this to a more macro level. Why are teams so much more important now than they used to be? And what big objectives do we accomplish by working with teams other than our basic strategies? Okay, I think there's a lot happening in this space at the moment. I think teams have always been important, Maureen, always been important. But they went off the agenda for quite a number of years. I think the 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 the, the concept of individualism really became apparent in the late 90s and into the 90s. Um, and teams really weren't on the radar for companies. But they're back now with a vengeance. Deloitte's have just completed over the last couple of years two major surveys, their global human capital survey. 
Um, and you're talking about 17,000 companies participating globally in these surveys. And the two things they took out in 2016 and 2017 was the demise of the traditional hierarchy, the deconstruction of the traditional hierarchy in favor of a network of teams, which delivers more agility to the organization to respond to challenging business needs. So we now have a recognition that the traditional hierarchy is no longer the most appropriate way to manage our businesses. And we need to move to this concept of a network of teams. And there are lots of issues driving this, not just the need for agility, not just the need for that, 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 that greater flexibility that teams can deliver. But the gig economy is changing how we understand the world of work. Now we're talking about somewhere in the region of 33%, it's now reported, of U.S. employees are coming through the gig economy. They're self-employed. And that's expected to rise to about 50% by the early 2020s. Similarly, in Europe, the same thing is happening. Now, the, gig, the giggers are now doing this as a choice rather than out of necessity, I might add. So they're coming into organizations and leaving, coming in and leaving. So when a gigger comes in, you need that person to be productive day one. You don't want to spend, they're only coming with you for three months to do a project. You can't have them productive in the last month. You need them productive pretty early on. One of the best ways to get a person coming in in that situation effective is to bring them into a really effective team strategy where the team has social norms, rules of engagement, clarity and goals, where they can quickly socialize the gigger to what needs to be done and get them engaged and productive from nearly day one. The other element of that is that these giggers have a very, very major impact on brand, on company brand, on employer brand. So if I have a really good experience with you as a gigger, I'm going to write in the platforms about my good experience with you. But I'll equally write about the bad experience I've had, and no gigger will touch you if they see these bad experiences being reported. So teams really, and a good team strategy, allows us to absorb these giggers in, and they're going to become a critical part of our talent over the next number of years. So a good team strategy, robust teams who can accommodate giggers, socialize them quickly to the norms of the business, get them productive initially, that's a really good imperative for why teams are, are, are need to be actually in place today in our organizations. So that's just one. Millennials. We now know that uh, they have a very different perspective on the world of the baby boomer and uh, previous generations. Um, and probably for a, a, a good thing it is too. They now equate to 40% of the workforce. By 2025, they will be 75% of the workforce. So, you know, baby boomers move over. The world is changing. These people have a very, very different attitude to the place of work. They have a very different disposition as to how they understand things. They're not interested in in, in, in things like money, status, individual work, power, hierarchy. They're not, they, 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 they want to work with people and they admire knowledge and experience, not position and power. They want new challenges every 12 months. They're not waiting for three to five years to get a promotion. They get bored quickly and they thrive on innovation and change, not the same old, same old. They want coaching and not supervision. They want to enhance their own brand as much as the organization's brand. They want to interact with peers and leaders and not be stuck in a traditional small team and a single leader. To accommodate that disposition and mindset, you've got to have a network of teams that they can move through and where you can rotate them and get the best out of them for the period of time they'll spend with you. Because the millennials don't understand the concept of a job for life. Uh, they don't understand the concept of a career for life anymore. So they look to move every two to three years. You need to get the best out of them in the time they're with you and expect to. You have to manage to lose. Um, and that's where we're going to go. So again, Teamwork is what brings through the kind of environment they want, collaborative environments, flexibility, the richness of project variation. They, get, they want their leaders co-located with, with their teams, not directing them from a distance, so you have to change the whole physical atmosphere in which, in which they work. 
They need the capacity to deliver on the communication demands that these people have. They want information now, not to. They want it now. They don't want to know about you setting goals in January to talk eventually about them in December. To them, that's just a complete waste of time. Their world is the internet of things. It's instantaneous. They want immediate feedback, continuous feedback, short and sharp. That's what they're looking for. And they want it. Team environments deliver that. Team environments have a capacity to deliver that. The traditional hierarchy doesn't. So that's another really good reason for us to actually have the teams in place and a team strategy, because we won't be able to maintain and sustain our talent if we don't get this right. And then ultimately, in my view, the whole diversity and inclusion agenda, which is huge. Now they say over 40% of CEOs and C-suites actually have DNI as a core objective within their organization for all the good reasons. It does bring a fantastic return to the organization. But the older generations view diversity and inclusion in a particular way compared to the new generations. So for the older generation, they see it primarily as a diversity issue, as a diversity lens. And DNI is is often confused as being one and the same thing. It's not. It's two very separate issues. So the older generations think through a diversity lens. They see it's mainly to do with fairness, equity, you know, regardless of gender, race, religion, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. That for them, it's a moral and legal obligation. It's the right thing to do doesn't matter whether it benefits the business or not. It's just the right thing to do. To the millennium, diversity is a given. You know, that's, that's automatic. What they're concerned about is inclusion. How are you going to include me? How are you going to get me an opportunity to be involved? How are you going to blend all these different backgrounds? Because the, the millennial believes that diversity, um, is, and by 71% of them believe this, is an essential element to innovation. And they see a focus on teamwork as a way of working compared to the older generation. So they want teamwork. They want to engage in this way. They want to feel included in this way. And if we don't deliver the team-based environment, the team, the network of teams, we're not meeting their needs. And they're going to be in the ascendancy very, very soon. They're going to be running the show within the next couple of years. So there's three really good reasons why organizations really need to get to grips with the concept of the network of teams and moving from that traditional hierarchy to the concept of a horizontal environment where the teams are empowered to make the decisions that they need to make to do the job that needs to be done. So with all of that, one of the things that comes to my mind is the recent Corn Ferry article that talks about talent shortage and where it is growing and the impact on the economy is trillions of dollars. And that by doing uh, $8.5 trillion dollars of unrealized revenue and a shortage of 85.2 million workers and, and the uh, the report breaks down by 2030 who's falling short and who's not and the reason I bring it up is if teams help us attract the right people to our organization if there is a is a shortage we as people running companies will be competing for that talent and the companies that win that competition will be the ones most likely to succeed long term. So if teams help me attract millennials, get them productive easily, attract gig workers, and build diversity and inclusion, it seems like it would be a no-brainer. Well, it is to me. That's why I wrote the book. Um, That's the frustrations I was experiencing. There is so much benefit to be accrued to the organization who gives some time to this who develops that strategy. And look, at the end of the day, rocket, teamwork and corporate team strategies, it's not rocket science. 
but it does take a bit of work. Uh, it, it, it takes a bit of a bit of bit of commitment, and it does take a bit of budget too. And to be honest, I'll be honest about that. But it delivers such incredible returns for the organisation. Can you imagine any organisation if they were to get a twenty to twenty five percent improvement in effectiveness across the board in all of their teams? The impact of the bottom line is just astounding. It's even incredible if you get 5% improvement across all the teams in your organization. Think of just the impact on the bottom line. It's just phenomenal. It's so worth it. It is so worth it. So for our listeners, we have about 10 minutes left or less. Um, what are, again, a couple of things? You've, you've made the case very effectively that we need teams uh, we need it for productivity, and we need to improve the the effectiveness of the majority of our our employees working in teams. So, can you recommend? And I, again, I realize you have a whole book and lots of tools, and and it's more in depth than five minutes would permit. But what are a couple of things people could do immediately when they uh, get done listening to this interview? Well. Um... I think we have to begin to, to we, we really have to grapple with the issue of corporate team strategy, CTS. Do we know what we're doing with teams in our organization? So I think these things have to happen at two different levels. There's an organizational response, which is to do with strategy. How do we support teams? How do we empower teams? How do we budget with teams? How do we actually break this traditional hierarchy and give the teams the empowerment that they need? to deliver what they need to deliver. That's one element of it. The other element is, is, is how do we get our team leaders to, because they're, they're the crux of the matter. The team leader is the person who ultimately will start the process with the team in terms of building psychological safety, creating that reflexivity time, creating that environment where people will be able to talk and exchange ideas and create innovation and deliver and deliver and more and deliver more for the organization and for the team. So we've got two things we need to address here. One is we need to start thinking at the organization level about corporate team strategy and how we're going to overall develop this whole concept. And then at the local level, at the team level, we need to be working more with our team leaders in how to deal with these teams and how to ask the right questions. Trust the team leaders and the teams to come up with the answers. You just have to provide them with the questions. And that's another okay. thing. Trust them. Or, or replace them. Yeah. yeah. Remove them out of the role. Because you talked about how ineffective some team leaders are. Yeah. It is also take action, not, not fire them, but either get them training, bring them up to speed, or move them into a role that isn't leading the team. But also, I think, I mean, I, okay, we talked about that, and we might have put an overemphasis on it in terms of team, you know, the vast majority of team leaders, as in any normal distribution curve, are doing a good job, okay? Okay. Some are outstanding. Most are doing a really good job. There's a few that, you know, you shouldn't put them behind an orange box, to be quite honest with you, but there you go, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it's about trusting the teams as well. You see, we talk about trusting our employees. We talk about trusting them implicitly, and that's the whole basis of our culture. And yet, when it comes to budget, we don't allow them to spend a penny, literally and metaphorically, we don't allow them to spend a penny without an exhaustive approval process. Where's the trust in that? We've got to rethink how we even budget in our organizations. We've got to give teams at the local level the power to do what needs to be done. That means also power of budget. Now, it doesn't have to be extensive, but they have to have some control over it. If every time they make a decision, a team has to revert to the traditional hierarchy for approval, well, they're wasting their time. It's just just nonsense. 
So we've got to rethink how we do this. We've got to trust people and say people come to work because they want to. People come. We're, Terry White thinking people are basically self-motivating if you give them the space. Okay. So we are coming to wrap up now. And so just a couple of things I heard in that, that last segment, we need both a corporate strategy about for how we work with teams. And I haven't heard that before in that way. And we need to give our teams the concrete tools to actually make changes. Yes. Simon, how do people, they can buy your book on Amazon. If you could tell us the name of your book again and where they can find out more. Well, you can go to, you can buy the book on Amazon, Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, The Imperative of Teams. Uh, you can also go to the the Odd Company website, which is theoddcompany.ie. You'll find out a lot about what, what we talk about tonight and in, in subsequently how we do stuff in terms of developing these strategies. But the it's all about, look, it's not, a, this is not rocket science. And I keep saying this to my clients. It's not rocket science. Stop and think and stop assuming that teams are going to do it just because you call them a team. You've got to back mm-hmm. them. You've got to support them. Look at the way we structure our organizations. Every policy and procedure we have is to do with the individual. Where are all the policies and procedures and strategies for the teams? Because they're not appropriate to, to teams. So as our organizations move from hierarchies toward teams, you've made a brilliant business case for how we need to manage them differently, how we need to build them into the strategies, how we need to help individuals on teams lead the teams effectively. So thank you. And hopefully for our listeners, you will check out Simon's book, go learn more about them from the odd company, ODD company. All one word, the odd company. Thank you. And and odd by nature, I might add. So for our listeners, we welcome your feedback and seek it out, info at metcalf-associates.com or on Facebook, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Thank you for spending an hour of your time with us. And I hope that you are able to put something into action that you heard from Simon today. And we look forward to connecting with you again in the next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.